0: In the biblical worldview, the most complete and intimate physical union is intended to express the most complete and intimate union of a whole person. There's no division, no fragmentation. The Christian ethic is incarnational. What you do with your body is meant to be in harmony with who you are as a person.
1: Welcome to Lecture Me, an FROC podcast series addressing life, family, and religious liberty issues in the culture. In this podcast, we'll have weekly sit-downs where we listen to guests from the FRC speaker series and then bring in a friend to discuss its impact on our developing culture. You'll hear from FRC experts, passionate advocates, and people who work on the front lines of the culture wars. I'm your host, Matthew Mangiarachina. Nancy Piercy says there's a divided view of the human being that devalues the body, leading to abortion, same-sex marriage, casual sex culture. It led to the now mainstream personhood argument that justifies abortion and even infanticide by some bioethicists. It's led to the term sexual fluidity in which sexualities claim to be separate from biology. Casual sex is a result of devaluing the respect for the human body by trying to separate sex and emotional attachment, or so says Piercy. She came into FRC to talk about this in her book, Love Thy Body. Let's hear what she had to say.
0: So my book, A Leather Body, is about the cutting-edge moral issues of our day. A- abortion, as as Katrina said, abortion, euthanasia, homosexuali- homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. Today, people are not asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? That message is coming down all the way from the Supreme Court. Listen to what the court said when it struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, which was a federal law recognizing marriage between a man and a woman. The court said, the court accused this, the law's supporters of being motivated by animus. What does animus mean? Hostility, hatred. Their purpose was to disparage, injure, degrade, demean, humiliate, and harm people in same-sex marriages, to brand them as unworthy, to impose a disadvantage, a stigma, to deny them equal dignity. So the court did not just say that people who oppose same-sex marriage are mistaken. It denounced them as hostile and mean-spirited. So today I want to turn the tables. I want to show that in reality, it's the liberal secular ethic that is deeply dehumanizing and undermines human dignity and destroys human rights. It's easiest to see if we jump right in with an example. So let's start with abortion. A few years ago, an article appeared by a British broadcaster who said she had always been proudly pro-choice until she became pregnant with her own baby. And then she began to struggle. She writes, I was calling the life inside me a baby because I wanted it. But if I hadn't wanted it, I would think of it as just a group of cells that it was okay to kill. That didn't make sense. To her credit, she realized. A baby, a fetus doesn't become a baby just because somebody wants it. So she began to research the subject, and she even produced a documentary on it. And after several months, she reached this conclusion. She said, in the end, I have to agree that life begins at conception. But perhaps the fact of life is not what's important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. So what's happened here to the concept of the human being? If you can be a human life (laughs) at one point, but not a person until sometime later, then clearly these are two different things. This is a completely divided, fragmented, fractured view of what it means to be a human being. In fact, philosophers sometimes illustrate with um, the, the imagery of two, two stories in a building. So in the low, lower story is the body. That's what we know about the human being from science, our biological status as human organisms. And today, most professional bioethicists agree that in that sense, life begins at conception. The evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. But their attitude is summed up in a recent article that was titled So what if abortion ends life? Recall what the broadcaster said. She said, perhaps the fact of life is not what's important. So for secular bioethicists, being human biologically, physiologically, genetically human is not enough to qualify for legal protection. The fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person typically defined in terms of mental abilities, some level of cognitive functioning, self-awareness, and so on. But notice the implication of that. What bioethicists are admitting is that you can be human, and yet they, dis- they see it as just a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be used for research experiments, it can be picked through fissile body parts as planned parenthood does and then tossed out with the other medical waste in other words being human is no longer enough for human rights this is called personhood theory and the most obvious what's the most obvious problem with it if you detach personhood from being biologically human how do you define it Every bioethicist comes up with a different definition. Some identify a a point before birth. Some say after birth. Peter Singer, the bioethicist at uh, Princeton University says, three years of age is still a a gray area. How much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? Several months ago, an article appeared in the journal of medical ethics by two philosophers arguing for what they called afterbirth abortion. What did they mean by that? Infanticide, exactly. (laughs) And, but notice the reasoning they used. The authors argued, oops, so this person had theory. Um, the The authors argued that merely being human is not in itself a reason for ascribing to someone a right to life. And since non-persons have no moral rights to life, there are no reasons for banning afterbirth abortions. So once again, being human is not enough for human rights. So when the concept of personhood is separate from biology, it becomes arbitrary. There's no objective criteria. As a result, every ethicist draws the line at a different place, depending on their own, private views and values depending on their own personal preferences or even their own religion. (laughs) Listen to Yale professor Paul Bloom. He's writing about abortion in the New York Times. And he said, the question is not really about life in any biological sense. Instead, it is asking about the magical moment at which a cluster of cells becomes more than a mere physical thing. It is a question about the soul. So who is re- injecting religion into politics? What's happened is that supporters of abortion have lost the argument on the scientific level. And so they've shifted to the non-scientific, non-empirical, even religious concept of personhood. So science is on our side in this issue. It's time to turn the tables. When personhood is rooted in biology, then we have a marker of human status that is objective, empirically testable, universally detectable, something we can identify scientifically. So to be pro-science is to be pro-life. So what about euthanasia? Again, the driving force is personhood concept. What was the most high profile euthanasia case in recent history? (laughs) Everyone still remembers Terry Schiavo. The media presented it as a right-to-die case, but Terry was not dying. She was not terminally ill. So that's really not what' was at stake. The core issue came out in a television program where Res- Wesley Smith asked a bioethicist, "Do you think Terry is a person?" And he said, "No, I do not." I think having awareness is an essential criterion for personhood. So according to personhood theory, if you are mentally disabled, if you, uh, ha- have, if you no longer have a certain level of cognitive functioning, then you are no longer a person, even though you're obviously still human. And at that point, many bioethicists say you are only a body, and you can be unplugged, your treatment withheld, your food and water discontinued, your organs harvested. I was once invited to appear on an NPR program in San Francisco, which I thought might be a challenging audience. And I was promptly disinvited after I said, the case for abortion and euthanasia is exclusive. It says some people don't make the cut. They don't measure up. They don't qualify for the rights of personhood. It's the pro-life position that's inclusive. If you're a member of the human race, you're in. You count. Every human is a person. the most surprising point that I make in Love Thy Body is the claim that all of the sexuality issues also rest on the same worldview, the common thread that connects them to abortion and euthanasia. They all rest on a secular liberal ethic that separates the body from the person. Consider the hookup culture. It rests on the assumption that sex can be purely physical, cut off from the whole person without any hint of love or commitment. Young people know the script all too well. In Love Thy Body, I include several heart-wrenching quotes from college students, like Alicia, who says, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Or a college student interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine made this comment. She said, the mistake people make is they assume that there are two distinct elements in a relationship, one emotional and one sexual, and they pretend that there are clean lines between them. Do you recognize that language of dualism? She's almost verbally describing this little diagram. Critics of the hookup scene often say it gives sex too much importance. But in reality, it gives sex too little importance. Let me quote another Rolling Stone article. Don't you love the internet? You get to read articles you'd never read before. (laughs) Publications you would never read. It's a Rolling Stone magazine. A young man said, sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. So the hookup culture expresses a worldview that says your body can be treated as purely physical, driven by physical impulses and instincts, cut off from the rich inner life of the whole person. No wonder it's creating a trail of wounded people and things like the Me Too movement. People are trying to live out a secularist ethic that does not fit who they truly are. We do not naturally thrive on casual, meaningless sexual encounters. We crave emotional intimacy and fidelity. In the biblical worldview, the most complete and intimate physical union is intended to express the most complete and intimate union of a whole person. There's no division, no fragmentation. The Christian ethic is incarnational. What you do with your body is meant to be in harmony with who you are as a person. What about homosexuality? People are stunned by how quickly same-sex marriage was legalized. People on both sides were stunned at how quickly it happened. How did it happen? It's because it's a logical implication of this same divided view of the human, uh, the human being that devalues the body. Think of it this way, nobody really denies that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace embrace a same-sex identity, then, is to implicitly contradict that design. To say, why should the structure of my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex, as male or female, have any say in my moral decisions. This is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. And by pitting the mind against the body, it leads to inner fragmentation and, and self-alienation. Now, some people push back and say, well, wait a minute, if sexual orientation is rooted in our genes, then they are being true to their biology. But despite extensive research, there's no conclusive evidence of, of any biological cause. We can quote the American Psychological Association on this as our as our authority here. No findings have emerged that permit scientists t- to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor. And in context, they discussed both genetic and social factors. In fact, what research does find, is that about 80% of people who come out as homosexual change the sexual identity label at least once, from homosexual to heterosexual, bisexual, queer, and so on. 80% change the sexual, sexual identity at least once. That does not sound like a trait that is biologically determined. The magazine The New Scientist ran an article titled Sexuality is fluid. It's time to get past born this way. Now, in religious circles, you will often hear people say that God makes some people gay. But I met a former homosexual who I think offered a good answer to that. He said, if God made someone gay, then God has played a cruel joke on them. He's engineered their mind and emotions for attraction to the same sex, but he's created a physiology to be in direct opposition to that attraction? Would God create people to be torn into two conflicting directions? In the Christian worldview, it was the fall that introduced alienation, division, and conflict into the world, including inner conflict. Today, it's widely accepted that if someone experiences that inner conflict between mo- body and mind, it's the mind that wins, right? That's what counts, it's your, ide- your identity is defined by your feelings, your desires. But why accept such a demeaning view of the body? In Love Thy Body, I argue for a Christian ethic that is holistic, our mind and emotions in tune with our body. It's an ethic that overcomes self alienation and leads to self integration, a sense of internal unity and wholeness. Now, if we dig even deeper, we've discovered that every ethic ultimately stems from a view of nature. And the liberal secular ethic, because our body is part of nature, right? So the liberal ethic actually stems from the theory that nature is a product of blind, undirected forces. And it was Darwin's theory of evolution that cemented that idea in the modern mind. Here's how a recent article in the New Yorker put it. It said, the loyalty oath of modernity. Isn't that a grand phrase? The loyalty oath you need to take if you want to be considered a modern person is that nature is without conscious design. The emergence of homo sapiens with without meaning or telos, which is the Greek word for goal or purpose. So the implication is that the, the human body has no intrinsic purpose that we are morally obligated to respect. Your body is just a meat machine, a piece of matter, and the mind is free to use it any way it wants. That's exactly how homosexuality is defended by the um, outspoken lesbian Camille Paglia. I'm sure that name is familiar to many of you. Have you've heard of Camille Paglia? <laughs> A Washington D.C. audience says yes. I could, where I'm from in Houston is like, no, who she? <laughs> but she's a, a well-known public intellectual and she, she calls herself a pagan lesbian. Um, and in one of her articles, she acknowledges that nature made us male and female. She has no, uh, no patience for the feminist notion that it's a social construction. She says, no, 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 nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. But then she asks, these are her words, why not defy nature? After all, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So the logic is that if our bodies are a product of mindless, purposeless forces, they convey no moral message to give no clue to our identity, and we may do with them as we see fit." By contrast, a Christian view of nature is teleological, which comes from that same Greek word telos, meaning goal or purpose. It's evident to observation that living things are structured for a purpose, that eyes are made for seeing, ears are made for hearing, wings are made for for flying, and fins for swimming. The development of the entire organism is directed by an inbuilt plan or blueprint. So science itself tells us that nature exhibits a design, a plan, an order, a purpose. And when we live in harmony with that purpose, we are healthier and happier. Let me give you an example. Um, In Lovely Body, I tell the story of a woman named Jean who lived as a lesbian for several years and is now married and has two children. And Jean says, I finally came to trust that God had made me female for a reason, and I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. In fact, in Love, Their Body, I tell lots of stories. Don't think of it as just um, a book of moral arguments. Um, and and my fa- one of my favorites is the story of Sean, which is also in the chapter on homosexuality. As a young man, Sean identified as gay and was exclusively attracted to other men. Today, he is married and has three children. So what changed? Sean said, I stopped defining my identity by my sexual feelings. And I started regarding my physical body as who I was. His goal was not to try to change his feelings, which rarely works. Rather, my goal was to acknowledge what I already had, a male body, as a good gift from God. And eventually, my feelings started to follow suit. So instead of defying nature, he accepted his embodied existence as fundamentally good. And that's really the question at the heart of this debate, Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind material forces or a cosmos created by a loving creator, which is therefore intrinsically good? Now, same-sex marriage happened fast. The transgender movement is happening even, even faster. They hit the ground running. And why? Because it rests on the same dehumanizing view of the body. Trans activists argue explicitly that gender has nothing to do with biological sex. A BBC documentary says, at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. And in that war, it's the mind that wins. In a Fourth Circuit case, a girl who identified as a boy named Gigi uh, demanded the right to use the boy's restroom. And the judge ruled, Gigi's birth assigned sex, or so called biological sex, is female, but Gigi's gender identity is male. Her so called biological sex, in sneer quotes, this is a judge writing a formal ruling for a federal court, and he treats the very existence of biological sex with suspicion. Apparently, he thinks the facts of physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, and DNA are less real than the teenager's subjective feelings. The the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And under the guidelines issued by the Obama administration, trans activists were sure that they were going to win. And they were right. They were going to win. Then Trump was elected and he rescinded the Obama guidelines. The case was remanded back to the Fourth Circuit. So we came within a hairbreadth <laughs> of a Supreme Court decision imposing transgender policies across the nation. This was going to be the trans version of Obergefell. So um, just want you to know we, c- we came that close to having a federal uh, Supreme Court decision. Um, I was reading a book by... Tr- Princeton University professor on transgenderism. I like to see what the intellectuals say because that's what filters down to ordinary people. Um, and it was fascinating because it was, a, it was a defense of transgenderism. But in the process, this uh, Princeton professor admits that transgenderism involves disconnect, disjunction, self-division, self-estrangement. She says, the physical body tells us nothing. It has no meaning at all. So kids down to kindergarten today are being estranged from their own body. They're being told it's not part of their authentic self. But why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? I recently read an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years from age 11 and then uh, reclaimed her identity as a girl, and she said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Uh, the interview came out after my book was already in print, but it would have been a great quote <laughs> for a book titled, Love Thy Body. And, and this was a young, uh, yeah, from the mouth of babes, right? This is a 14-year-old girl. She's not a Christian. Um, but she recognized that what's at issue is your view of the body. There's a very popular TED talk, uh, uh, I wonder how many of you have seen this, it's by a cardiologist named Paula Johnson. Have you seen it? The key line from it that everyone quotes is, every cell has a sex. Uh, if you haven't watched it, go on, go on YouTube and watch it. Uh, every cell has a sex. What that means is that men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. We're different across all our organs from our brains to our hearts, our lungs and our joints. Now her concern as a cardiologist is that symptoms of an impending heart attack are different from men and women. And so women were coming to, to, to the doctors, and the doctors weren't seeing the symptoms they'd been trained to, to look for, sending the woman home, and they would have heart attacks. Um, but it, when, when I looked at the um, YouTube, and you, you read the comments underneath, and several people said, oh, she's so transphobic. She hadn't said anything about transgenderism. (laughs) But the very fact that she affirmed the male-female binary for medical purposes uh, was interpreted as transphobic. And finally, some wise person put a comment saying, she's not transphobic, guys. She's just saying that no matter what your gender philosophy, when you get sick and they put you on the operating table, they need to know your original biological sex to give you the best medical care. The next movement on the horizon is a completely postmodern view of sexuality, that it's not rooted in anything objective, but it's just a social construction. So, how many of you seen this cartoon, The Gender Unicorn? <laughs> yeah, it is ubiquitous. It's in all the public schools now, and not only public schools. Um, my sister's a, a counselor in a battered women's shelter, and they're being trained with this cartoon. It's everywhere, so if you haven't seen it, Look it up. Uh, It's coming to your school, your child's school. And what it's used to deconstruct sexuality into five separate factors, sex assigned at birth, gender identity, gender expression, physical attraction, and emotional attraction. So the cartoon teaches students that there's no unified self. You are a disconnected, discordant patchwork of bits and pieces that can all be contradictory. And this is essentially the worldview that's being imposed by SOGI laws, sexual orientation and gender identity. We call them SOGI, SOGI laws. Even feminists are protesting this drastic fragmentation. Uh, I read some feminist philosophers, uh, and one of them says postmodernists are perpetuating the deep modern alienation of our human being from nature. Another says, we should protest this disavowal of biology. To clarify our identity, we should turn toward the body, not away from it. So why are feminists concerned? They're concerned because to to protect women's rights, we must be able to say what a woman is. If the body itself is a social construct, as postmodernists like Judith Butler say, then it becomes impossible to argue for rights based on the sheer fact of being female. We cannot legally protect a category of people if we cannot identify that category. Now uh, what I found interesting is that among many of my secular friends, the argument they found most persuasive is from environmentalism. One thing we've learned from the environmental movement is that to avoid pollution and ecological disasters, we need to respect the structure of nature when we intervene. We need to work with the natural order. We may not do as we see fit, t- to use Camille Paglia's phrase, when it comes to the environment. And in the same way, what Christians are saying is that we should respect the structure of our own biological nature. The, the, biological, the biological correspondence between male and female is not some evolutionary accident. It's part of the original creation that God pronounced very good. In fact, our sexual nature possesses a language. It is part of the created order that is declaring the glory of God. Now, in all of these issues, people will often respond, how do other people's choices affect you? Why don't you just let them live the way they want to? And the answer is, though when laws are changed, that affects everyone. A free society is possible only when some rights are seen to be pre-political. That means the the state does not create them, the state only recognizes them. And many of our pre-political rights are based on biology. So when we dismiss biology, we are losing those rights. So take the right to life. That's a pre-political right. That's something you have just because you're a member of the human race. But the only way the state could legalize abortion was to rule that some humans are not legal persons. That's what every way did. Which means the state has claimed the authority to decide which humans have the right to live. Even if they delegate that right to individual women today, in principle the state has claimed the right to to decide who has a right to live based not on biology but only on its own legal fiat. Marriage is a pre-political right. It's based on the fact of sexual reproduction, but the only way the state could treat same-sex couples the same as opposite-sex couples was to redefine marriage without without any connection to biology uh, as a purely emotional commitment, and that's what the Supreme Court did in its Obergefell decision. The trouble is we have lots of emotional commitments, so the state has claimed the authority to decide which of those commitments qualify as marriage, based not on biology, but only on its own say-so. In fact, um, in in the Oberfeld case, the defense argued that marriage has to do with biology. I mean, right? Sex between a man and a woman can lead to children. But Justice Kennedy dismissed biology and insisted the purpose of marriage is to protect the personhood of same-sex couples, so there's that direct connection to the personhood concept in abortion and euthanasia, is to protect the personhood of same-sex couples. Until very recently, like the last few years, gender was thought to follow metaphysically from your biological sex. People didn't think there was a disconnect, but the only way the law can treat a trans woman, that is, someone born male, the same as a biological woman to is to dismiss biology as irrelevant and that's why public schools today are enforcing policies telling teachers which pronouns they must use regardless of the student's biological sex. And if you read same-sex advocates, especially lawyers, they tell you the next step is parenthood. Until now, who counts as a child's legal parents was based on biological relationship? and the state's role is merely recognizing that natural reality. This is called the presumption of parentage. And if you want to adopt, you have to go through a complex legal procedure to in a sense duplicate, um, model your relationship on biological parenthood. But in a same-sex couple, at least one parent is not biologically related to any child they have. So the only way the state can grant them the presumption of parentage is to redefine parenthood without regard to biology. So instead of recognizing parenthood as pre-political, parenthood will be treated as something created by the state, which means, in essence, you will be your child's parent only by permission of the state. And what the state gives, the state can take away. Human rights are no longer inalienable. Now, wait a minute, people will often say, The low view of the body in Western culture is not a product of secularism, but of Christianity. After all, there's a reason we have terms like puritanical. And I can see why some people might think that. One of my grad students put it this way. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught, spirit good, body bad. And usually when I say that, everyone says, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. But the reason for that is that many Christians have lost touch with their own heritage. The early Christian church was born into uh, an ancient Greek and Roman culture that also had a low view of the body, like modern secularism does, though for different reasons. The early church faced philosophies like Platonism and Gnosticism that treated this world as the realm of death, decay, and destruction. Gnosticism even taught that the material world <laughs> was a creation of a low-level deity, an evil god. No self-respecting god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter uh denigrated the body as a prison house of the soul and the goal of salvation was to escape the physical realm leave it behind in this historical context christianity was nothing short of revolutionary because it taught the material world was created by the highest god not a low-level god but the supreme deity and therefore it is intrinsically good but at the time Christianity's greatest scandal was its claim that that same supreme deity had entered into the material realm and taken on a physical body. So the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And what's more, when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say he did escape the physical realm as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do, but what did he do then? He came back in a bodily resurrection. <laughs> to the Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. <laughs> yeah, this was regress. Who would want to come back to the body? The whole idea was utter foolishness to the Greeks, as Paul says in First Corinthians. And what will happen at the end of time? Christianity says God is not going to scrap the material universe, as though he made a mistake the first time around. He's going to renew it and restore it and create a new heaven and a new earth. So the Apostles' Creed affirms the resurrection of the body. This is an astonishingly high view of the physical realm. There is nothing like it in any other philosophy or religion. When Love Thy Body first came out, I was was surprised by the customer reviews on uh, Amazon and blogs and so on. The most common response went something like this. I picked up your book to learn handy answers to current issues, but what I found out is it's transforming me. It's teaching me the dignity and worth that Christianity gives to the created order. And the most frequent word was transformative. So my goal is to give people tools to debunk the negative stereotype that is so common, you're hateful, you're bigoted, and reach out with a positive message that is more compelling, more life-affirming more appealing than the secular
1: ethic. Today we've got David Claussen, the Director for Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview here at FRC. David, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Matthew. So you read the book Love Thy Body and even wrote a little about it, so you're actually really well acquainted with these things that Nancy's talking about on the Christian ethic versus the secular ethic of body versus mind and all that. What I thought was really interesting at the very beginning was that Piercy says People aren't asking if Christianity is true. They're just asking, well, why are Christians such bigots? How do you think it is that we got to that point?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And first, I just want to say this book is a timely and important work, especially the issues we track here at FRC of faith, family, religious freedom. Because, you know, we, we watch the news issues related to the sexual revolution and religious liberty, abortion, and even infanticide, these, these issues that have been in the news, physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia. And Piercy does something that's really helpful, I think, and she goes beyond the headlines. She, she says we need to go beyond just what we're talking on cable news right now and realize that the issues that we're kind of talking about are issues related to worldview. And if we if we understand right. the deeper issues behind the presenting issues, that we can understand kind of what our opponents are talking about, and then
1: we can best engage them. Right, and it seems like we've really gotten away from that. How can we take the biblical worldview of what she says is the complete and intimate view of the human person and then relay that to people of the secular ethic. I feel like there's two ways that people tend to go about doing that, which is either they start at the sexual ethics and say, hey, person who's okay with gay marriage, gay marriage is actually wrong. Do we go straight into that, or do we take it all the way back to showing them the good news of the gospel and saying, this is why Christ loves you, and then sort of slowly lead them into all these other things? Right,
2: and I think that's what Piercy does in the book ultimately, as believers, we want to take people to the good news and re- and show them that the perspective that the Bible has on issues of sexuality, all these issues that we're dealing with, is actually more fulfilling and more beautiful than they could ever even have imagined. Mm-hmm. And what Piercy does is says we need to go again to the issue of worldview. And what she does, I think, in the book is just brilliant. And unlike a lot of books that might deal with abortion or physician-assisted suicide or like the hookup culture transgenderism, mm-hmm. she actually deals with all of these issues. And in her view, she says, underneath all of these presenting issues is what she calls personhood theory, which is kind of what bases the entire secular ethic. What the secular culture is doing is they've dichotomized body and mind. And Mm -hmm. she calls it the two-tiered system where you have the upper story, which is our mind, our, our feelings, our subjective thoughts, and the body, or excuse me, the lower story, which is our body. And whereas the biblical ethic would say that we are embodied souls or ensouled bodies, that they've dichotomized them, they've really separated them. And she says that at root is the problem we see here, what happening kind of in the culture and these different issues that we're dealing with.
1: Right, because when I talk to people about the idea of, you know, let's say gay marriage— And you're saying, we think this is what's best for you. This is the natural order of things. And we have this view because we love you and want you to do things that we got intended. Or just because if you try to say this is what we think is better, they think, how can you say that this is better if you're telling me I should have something that I don't want? I mean, if if this is what I desire, right? So I think what you're saying is really true to that. Getting back before that, because you're not just going to convince them by saying, well, this is what I think, right?
2: Right, and using Piercy's own framework, even on the issue kind of same-sex marriage or homosexuality, mm-hmm. she's arguing, again, we we can't separate our mind from our body. She argues this in one of her chapters that, you know, biologically, physiologically, and anatomically, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's just how the reproductive systems designed. It's just obvious. And what she's arguing is that our bodies tell us something about our design, that mm-hmm. there is a telos you could say, to a male and female anatomy, it says that we are built for something. But kind of the whole underlining worldview that we see with the advocates for homosexuality or same-sex marriage is that well, our sexually differentiated bodies really don't matter. What really matters is our thoughts, how we perceive things, our thoughts, our feelings, our desires. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to that body-person
1: divide. Right. Do you think there's a way to convey that to these secular people without trying to say, when you say, this is what God wants, and they're saying, well, I don't believe in God, because that really makes it a difficult thing to do. You know, trying to convey the natural order of things and natural law and that sort of thing to people who don't believe in God is really difficult. I don't know if you've had, run into that difficulty or have any way to, to deal with it. Right. Know? Well, again, it's interesting that a lot of
2: secular people who we might argue with, you know, that they're basing their arguments kind of in Darwinian evolution, that they, they build themselves as, you know, we're, we're strong materialist. Well, the biblical worldview actually is more affirming of the natural order and of materialism than even the secular worldview. What does the Bible say? It says that, you know, after God created the heaven's and earth, he looked at everything he made and it was very good, and that includes the human body. Mm -hmm. And so I think the Christian worldview, again, to use the phrase, is teleological. It, It sees that there's a telos to the the makeup of our own bodies, and that we are designed for something that, again, is more fulfilling than following this worldview that sees the mind and the body as somehow opposed to one another. Right. And again, that's what Piercy's arguing, that, that right. we need to see them as integrated, as this is a more holistic way of looking at things.
1: Right. I remember she even had just said how she sort of laments the puritanical view that she even grew up in. And it's interesting to see how she came from that, and she was sort of this self-proclaimed hippie, so to speak, of in terms of all this free love type stuff that was going on, but even saying that she came from a place where it was sort of puritanical, body's bad, but is arguing also that body's good, which, which yeah, is really good. Now, something else she said was she was lamenting that the state decides the value of life, but something that I wonder is, don't we agree in a certain sense that the state should have some say or have some kind of authority in when and how to value life, right? We have things like capital punishment, to use an extreme example, some people might disagree with whether that's a good or bad thing. But, you know, we, we agree that it's okay to say murder's wrong and that you should be punished for it and that, that justice, you know, that justice is going to come from God, but that the state also has a duty, you know, for the protection of other people. How do we reconcile having the state say certain things are wrong in terms of how we value life but is okay in other ways? know yeah, that's a good question.
2: I think again, what is the role of the state? Well, Ro- Romans thirteen speaks clearly that the state is a God ordained authority to wield the sword for justice. You know, the, the the role of the state is really just to preserve the God given natural rights that we have. Mm-hmm. And at least on the issue of capital punishment, as someone who's pro capital punishment is that's not devaluing life. It actually is a high view of life in one right. sense because it's saying what you've done by taking someone else's life is so horrific. You violated someone. Else's is rights. Uh, you've defaced the image of God in mm-hmm. such an egregious way that therefore you forfeit the right to live. I think the state and our, our founders understood this, that, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, ultimately the, the right of life is the most fundamental. If you, If you don't
1: have that, you don't have anything. Right, exactly. All right, and then she gets into the transgender issue for a while and also sort of notes that divide between the body and mind and says, You know, she even gave statistics that I think it was 70 or 80 percent. Most people who identify with a certain sexual orientation or gender at least change that one time, and that this idea of the identity is separated from the mind and body. How do we respond to that as Christians?
2: Yeah, I think Piercy is really helpful in saying, really, the ultimate manifestation of this kind of dualistic worldview that separates body from mind is the transgender movement. Mm Because what are the transgender advocates saying? Well, they're saying, I am not my body. And so, literally, they're looking at the body and saying, This physical organism that I have is not me. What defines me is my mind, my feelings, my desires. Right. And, and Piercy does a good job of showing how that's really, and it was interesting is a lot of Christians looking at the transgender issues like, oh my goodness, where did this come from? This is so terrifying or scary. And really what Piercy does in her book that's super helpful, she says this is actually an ancient stream of thought. And she traces it back to Gnosticism. Because what did the first century Gnostics argue? They said that the body is inherently bad and that we need to, the soul needs to escape the body. And so kind of the, I don't even think they realize it, but the modern day transgender advocates are going back 2,000 years looking at this kind of the Gnostic arguments that even Paul dealt with in the New Testament. Because the Gnostics, what they did is they started with like this metaphysical dualism and translated that into kind of an anthropological dualism. Again, where the body is bad, the body is evil, the material world is something that we should get away from as fast as possible. And the Christian worldview, though, speaks to that. If you think about it, just kind of the major axes of Christian doctrine, the body is actually elevated in Christian thought. Think about the incarnation, Mm -hmm. the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, who had only dwelled in unapproachable light from the beginning of time. What did he do? He stepped out of heaven and put on human flesh. If that doesn't elevate our view of the body, I don't know what does. And then not only that, is when he was crucified and buried three days later he resurrected and not in some weird mystical spiritual body but in a physical body remember in the upper room he he looked at thomas and said come feel me come touch me and then when he ascended he was in that physical body so again the christian worldview actually affirms the goodness of the body whereas Mm -hmm. our friends who you know in the transgender movement this real angst that they have is something that we can hopefully speak to with empathy and actually, one thing I'll say is it is important for Christians to speak to this issue with empathy because, you know, we live in a Genesis 3 world that is broken, uh, where people are really confused. And on this issue, we have to realize that people who really feel alienated from their body, they, they need our compassion. They need our empathy. I was I'm not much of a pop culture fan, but I was listening to a Pink song the other day, actually, Matthew. Ooh, ooh, saucy. And uh, this is the lyrics just stood out to me. She says this, God, it hurts to be human. Without you, I'd be losing. Someday we'll face the music, God, it hurts to be human. And then later on, she says, Since I was 17, I've always hated my body, and it feels that my body's hated me. And we just need to realize, and I think in her case, uh, she's reflecting on several miscarriages that she's had. Right. And, and so this notion that we see in our culture, this real alienation from the body, from Christian of uh, Christian worldview, we can see that's a symptom of a Genesis 3 world, that we are alienated from our Creator. And that's what the good news of the gospel is, that sinful people can be reconciled to a holy God through faith and repentance in
1: Christ. David, thanks for taking the time. That's some really, really good stuff. Folks, if you want more from LectureMe, visit FRC.org.